As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Michael, for today's product journey, I picked something that I think is a story worth telling. It's about a product that today is not just any typical product, but one that has an enormous footprint within society and even an entire multi-billion dollar ecosystem built around it. Okay, well, that is a pretty weighty product description. I, I think I may have an idea what you're referring to. In fact, we may have talked about this product a bit recently, maybe during that episode on hay. Well, the product I'm talking about is the Purple Project. Purple Project. Okay, that's that's not what I was thinking. Well, and there's a rule about the Purple Project that you should know. And that is? We put a poster up on the wall that was the poster of Fight Club. First rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. First rule about the Purple Project, that was the code name, was you don't talk about the Purple Project. Well, this is a podcast, and I mean, we're going to have to talk about the Purple Project. <laughs> All right. Okay, fair enough. Whose voice did we hear, by the way? Oh, that was Scott Forstall, who is a lead engineer at Apple for the original iPhone. He spoke in this Wall Street Journal segment about Apple's secret iPhone launch team. Ah, so we are talking about Apple. Yeah, and specifically the Purple Project, which was the original codename for the original iPhone. We'll dig into the original iPhone product journey today on this episode of Rocketship.fm, starting right now. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. So this week's product journey is the iPhone. That that's a big one. Yeah, it is. And hey, the reality is we could probably do an entire season on the actual <laughs> product journey for iPhone. So we don't have enough time to cover the entire journey in one episode, but we're going to focus on the original iPhone circa 2007, Apple's first foray into the mobile phone market. So what brought them here? 
at the time, they were doing particularly well with selling computers, music devices. Why phones? Well, there are a number of reasons, but really, like many good products, it started with wanting to solve a problem. At the time, while there were so many different kinds of phones, flip phones, big brick-style cell phones, even the first iteration of smartphones like Palm Trio and, of course, BlackBerry, there were issues. From their perspective, nobody seemed to really like their phones. Here's Scott again as he's interviewed during an event that was put on by the Computer History Museum marking the 10-year anniversary of the iPhone. I was sitting with Steve at lunch one time, and we were both using our phones, and we both had these phones, and we hated them. We started talking, we looked around, like, everyone around us has a phone. And everyone looks very angsty uh, as, as they're using them. Like, no one it seems like it's a pleasurable thing to use the phone, but it's a, it's a nice thing for communication. And Steve said, do you think we could take that demo we're doing with the tablet in multi-touch and shrink it down to something big enough or small enough to fit in your pocket, it'd be a phone size with that same touch technology. We went back to the design team and, uh, and they, they took and carved out a little corner of it and made this very simple demo. I'm pretty sure it was Boss who did it uh, and Boss is, is, is one of the best. And he made this thing, it was a, a simple list of names and you would, with your finger, you would drag along. It probably had the rubber banding and all. I mean, it's magical. You dragged along, and you tap on a name, and it would slide across and reveal the card. So phone number, email. You tap on a phone number, and it would say calling. It wasn't calling. It wasn't doing anything. But it said calling. Uh, the second you saw this demo, you knew this was it. There was no question. This is the way that a phone had to behave. Steve saw it and said, OK, Put the tablet on hold. Ah, pretty fascinating, actually. So uh, it sounds like the iPad, which came out years later, was being worked on first. And he references a tablet in that discussion. Yeah, it does sound like that, right? Um, but that iPad project sort of gets placed to the side, and the new focus is on creating this revolutionary phone. Although at first, the plan wasn't necessarily to build what we now know as the iPhone. At first, the idea was to take something that they already had and add a phone feature on top of that. And really, what would a phone feature even have been built upon? Well, think about it. Try to remember what it was like in, say, 2005. What was Apple known for? You were talking about it earlier. Yeah, they're known for computers, but I, I doubt they were thinking of building a phone embedded into a desktop or a laptop <laughs> computer. Definitely not. Uh, definitely not. But there was one more product that they were doing really, really well with. Ah, the, the iPod, of course. Bingo. And at first, the thought wasn't necessarily about building an iPhone. It was hey, can we build a phone into the iPod? So here's Tony Fidel. Tony was the senior vice president of the iPod division at that time at Apple. Um, later, of course, he went on to co-found Nest. Uh, anyway, this is from that same Wall Street Journal segment. First, we were making the iPod plus phone with a, you can say in a way, a hardware keyboard because it was using the interface of the iPod. Well, we tried, I think, 30, 40 different ways of making the wheel not become a old rotary phone dial, right? And nothing seemed logical or intuitive. And so at the end of the day, you couldn't, you could select from a list, right? That was what the iPod was all about. But then to actually dial a real number, it was so cumbersome. It was like, this is never going to work. 
But it became apparent that that game-changing product that they would make, it couldn't just be retrofitted into the iPod. It wasn't designed as a phone. It wasn't made for that experience. But as we heard before, the path that they were already on for this touchscreen tablet, that seemed pretty applicable. And so a touchscreen device seemed to be a much better direction. And this was something that Apple started getting everybody excited about internally? Well, yes and no. So Scott Forstall, who was essentially leading the Purple Project, the secret initiative to build Apple's first iPhone, he did start to recruit his internal team, but this was a secret team. This is all on a need to know basis at Apple. So if you weren't on that team, at least at first, you probably had no idea what was going on. More on that secret team and their work in building the very first iPhone after a quick word from our sponsors. So before we left, we started to learn a little bit more about this secret team that was starting to form at Apple to build the iPhone. In this interview with the Computer History Museum, engineer Nitin Ganatra, who was actually managing the mail and address book teams within the operating system group at Apple in 2005, remembers when Scott Forstall came into his office and recruited him to join the secret team. One day, Scott did walk into my office, close the door behind him, and, uh, and said, we're, we're going to be starting this new phone project. Uh, how would you like to give up managing the mail and address book teams and, and uh, manage uh, the, the, the uh, software part of, uh, of, of this phone thing? Uh, and it was, I, I mean, it was kind of, a, I mean, it was both terrifying and it was also uh, uh, amazing. And there were more conversations like this one. For hardware engineer Hugo Phineas, it wasn't a simple office conversation. He was actually working for Sigmatel in the UK, but Apple recruited him, actually a number of times. And finally, they convinced him to pack up and move to Cupertino without even knowing what project he'd actually be working on. Again, from that Computer History Museum interview. It was a big deal leaving the country, yeah, uh, and coming work on a project that I didn't know what it was going to be. I'm pretty sure it wasn't going to be a photocopier, but um, <laughs> I, we, we were when you're interviewed a lot of ex-Motorola people, it's like, huh, huh, radio, huh? Hmm. <laughs> and, yeah, everyone had been talking about phones. They'd, you know, they'd been the rumors for years. So he had a little hunch, and he knew it probably wasn't going to be some new fancy copy machine. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but more and more of these conversations started to happen, and the team started forming, and then these teams started to get to work. And if you can envision it, the secret team of designers, developers, hardware engineers, all collaborating together. Oh, but that's not exactly <laughs> how it all happened, Michael. <laughs> what? Why not? Well, it's not exactly the Apple way. Uh. This project wasn't just secret to the outside world or even to internal people who weren't working on the project. The designers working on the hardware weren't exactly exposed to what the software engineers were working on, even within the same secret team. Every individual group were working on kind of their own thing. During that Computer History Museum interview, Nitin was asked whether he felt like he had to jump through a lot of hoops due to the teams working so independently and apart from one another. It was an impediment. Of, I mean, I think, of course, it was an impediment. Um, but, but at the same time, there was, there was it, at the same time, there was so much value there as well by having this secret and having it, having it be that, you know, let the whole, let the rest of the world think that, in order to develop a phone, you have to do this incremental thing, right? You know, and, th and that's what the industry looks like. And you know, everybody's going to have effectively a dot one, and they're going to take a, a whole year to, to come out with that. You know? um, I, I mean, I think that all served us very well in the end, that you know, nobody knew what was coming, and nobody knew what, what we were working on. You know? and, and if anybody had to guess, 
they would think that it looked probably a lot like the Blackberries did right. at that time, or the trios did at that time. And they, you know, maybe if you asked anybody, based on what had already been happening in the phone industry before, they would think that we were going to have a very minor increment on top of the best phone that, that was there in 2006. Right, you know, because that was the pattern that everybody else was following. Yeah. So why would we have anything better, you know? And and so, if, you know, that that all, you know, I think those years of of you know, sort of slow development in the phone industry also helped us too. In addition to keeping it secret, it helped us really make a big splash. And we're definitely going to hear about that big splash that he references, but that comes later. Before that splash ever even happens, there's a lot of work that would need to be done. Hard work. What were some of those hangups for the team during the development? Well, let's go back to Scott Forstall and we'll let him speak to this. This is going back to that Wall Street Journal segment. The biggest science project of the entire endeavor, I think, for software was the soft keyboard. We, we knew we'd be able to create a keyboard, but we knew we'd be compared against the BlackBerry. The BlackBerry was the most popular smartphone out at the time. It's called the CrackBerry, right? The BlackBerry with its full tactile keyboard that everybody's thumbs got so used to using at the time. This keyboard had become the standard for smartphones at the time. Yeah, and, and how many keys are on an iPhone? Remind me. <laughs> well, we know the answer. Zero. <laughs> but to make that possible, it was not easy. Back to Scott Forstall. I remember we got somewhere in... I think it was early 2006, and I could see the light at the end of the tunnel for, for the iPhone OS. I could see when it was gonna ship. The keyboard wasn't there. Its accuracy was poor. Uh, it was just, it was hard to use. If you wanted to write an email, you'd give up. And so I went and I froze all development on all applications, and every UI developer at this point moved over and I said we're going to spend a few weeks and everyone's building keyboards. And at the end of, you know, I say 3 weeks, we all got together in a conference room and everyone got up and started demoing the keyboards they created. And some of these were just crazy. I mean, you you do these gestures, these super complex gestures that were really hard to learn. And one guy came in with his keyboard and it looked like a natural QWERTY keyboard. It's the kind of keyboard you use on your computer. It looked just like that. He started to use it, and it worked amazingly well. It was so accurate, which was completely different from the one we had three weeks earlier that looked similar but didn't work at all. So he started digging into, what did you do? And there are all these techniques he used, AI techniques and others, to figure out what you're trying to type. So if you type the letter T, there's a high probability you're going to type H next. The is a common word. So the H button would stay the same physical size to your eye, but the hit region would grow. And so when you went toward the H, you're probably going to hit the H now. And now the E is probably huge as a hit region, and you're going to hit the E. It would figure these things out. That is super interesting. And to be honest, I had no idea that AI was a part of the reason why Apple's keyboard just works. Yeah, and it was a game changer for them, as was other features and functions that now we just take for granted. But at the time, they were really revolutionary, um, which some of those include rubber banding, which that's that experience you get when you're scrolling through something and you hit the end. It kind of bounces up a bit to let you know that you've reached the end when you're swiping. Um, and speaking of swiping, swiping to unlock. I mean, that was completely brand new. These are all things that took a lot of thought as far as the overall user experience. And they're all things that needed to be figured out. So the team 
they were all thriving throughout this project? Well, yes and no. I mean, they were making amazing progress, but they couldn't quite get over to the finish line. After a couple of years of development, they still weren't quite to where they needed to be. And Steve Jobs, he was not so happy about that. He was even threatening to take the entire project away from them and assign a new team to finish the job. Greg Christie, who is leading the human interface team, and Scott Forstall, they remember that conversation well. You'll hear from both of them here again in this Wall Street Journal segment. He didn't have to read tea leaves. I mean, he said, if you don't start showing me something good soon, I'm going to give the project to another team. And he said, you have two weeks. And so we went back and Greg assigned different uh, specific ownership of different pieces of the design to different people. And that team worked 168 hours a week for two weeks. I mean, they just, they never stopped. When they did stop, Greg got them a hotel room across the road so they wouldn't have to drive home if they lived in San Francisco. And at the end of those two weeks, and we're looking at this thing and thinking, this, this is phenomenal. Like, this is it. Like, we have cracked it. Metaphorically speaking, of course. But the team, they finally did get there. The design was set. The milestones, they'd later be met. And soon, Steve Jobs would introduce Apple's new revolutionary iPhone to the world. We'll hear him make this introduction right after a quick word from our sponsors. Before the break, we learned about Apple forming the secret internal team to build the very first iPhone and how the team worked tirelessly to get it to a place where it could finally be put in the hands of customers. In 2007, at Macworld, Apple's own big event that was known to be a place where the media and the general public could come together to see what Apple's been working on, the iPhone would finally be unveiled. Let me talk about a category of things. The most advanced phones are called smartphones, so they say. And uh, they typically combine a phone plus some email capability, plus they say it's the internet, sort of the baby internet into one device. And they all have these plastic little keyboards on them. Uh, and uh, the problem is that they're not so smart and they're not so easy to use. Smartphones are definitely a little smarter, but they actually are harder to use. They're really complicated. Just for the basic stuff, people have a hard time figuring out how to use them. Well, we don't want to do either one of these things. What we want to do is make a leapfrog product that is way smarter than any mobile device has ever been and super easy to use. This is what iPhone is, okay? So we're going to reinvent the phone. We're going to reinvent the phone. Bold words, but how prescient. Yeah, no kidding. Anyway, at this point in the demo, you should know that Steve Jobs is standing in front of this giant screen, but the actual iPhone itself hasn't been revealed yet. But then he does reveal it, a picture of it anyway, and you can hear the audience gasp at the stark difference between this futuristic, sleek, beautiful device compared to the button-laden smartphones they've been used to. Steve Jobs goes on to talk about why this is different. It works like magic. <laughs> you don't need a stylus. It's far more accurate than any touch display that's ever been shipped. It ignores unintended touches. It's super smart. You can do multi-finger gestures on it. And boy, have we patented it. So. All of that, and yes, it's patented. Scott Forstall talks about the demo that Steve Jobs gave at that Macworld. The actual product demo itself, 
It was almost an hour long, screen by screen, feature by feature. We demoed almost every feature. We played music. We took calls during music. We, we went to really large and complex websites. I mean, it was, it was a major real demo and everything was live. Uh, so I sat there just sweating the whole time. <laughs> I was so nervous about it. Scott may have been sweating through it all, but the demo is huge success. There were gasps from the audience throughout the demo. It was really all people talked about throughout the rest of Macworld. Brian Tong, the senior editor at CNET now, talks about his experience of being at Macworld that year and seeing the unveiling of the iPhone firsthand in this segment from CNET that was produced on the iPhone's 10th anniversary. Well, the day that the iPhone was announced, I was actually at WWDC uh, at Moscone Center in San Francisco. And you have to remember, this is a time where Macworld was really the true showcase, the only event we saw once a year. Well, I was there for working for another company, a case company, and we, everyone knew that Apple was going to release a phone. The biggest thing that I remember is just the fact that he had to re-explain to the audience, like people didn't, couldn't make sense of it. People didn't know what it was. And then when he repeated himself, then people started flipping the f out. It also had industry analysts salivating. And you can hear it in this Fox 13 news clip as they interview industry analyst Tim Badgeran at Macworld after the demo took place. It is a quantum leap in that it delivers the next generation of what I think people want. And I think Apple's ability to anticipate over time is really important. Of course, it was an early product. Not everything was perfect. The one flaw that ended up being the biggest complaint, the actual ability to make a phone call. Its, its initial <laughs> partnership at launch was with AT&T, and not everybody was thrilled with the service at first. Connie Guglielmo, editor-in-chief at CNET, talks about these early issues in the same CNET segment where we heard from Brian Tong. There were massive problems with AT&T's partnership. Anybody who had an early iPhone, you could do a lot of things that look at this pretty device, but trying to get a phone call through Okay, so phone calls, they may have been tricky, but everything else was pretty magical. And the team at Apple had very big goals for taking on that mobile phone market. I feel like this is a setup, so let me play along. Just how big were those goals, Mike? Well, I'm glad that you asked, Michael. <laughs> I'll let Steve Jobs himself tell you, as he told the rest of the audience at Macworld 2007. You'll hear him paint a picture of the overall market size for mobile phones and Apple's goals for penetrating that market. Mobile phones? Just about a billion last year worldwide. So what does this tell you? What this tells you is that 1% market share equals 10 million units. This is a giant market. If you just 1% market share, you're going to sell 10 million phones. And this is exactly what we're going to try to do in 2008, our first full year in the market. In their first full year, their goal was to sell over 10 million iPhones. And did they get there? Well, they didn't sell 10 million iPhones in 2008 like they had planned. They sold 11.63 million iPhones. And that, of course, was only the start. The next two years, they nearly doubled their sales every year. And since 2015, Apple sold over 200 million iPhones each and every year. Today, it's almost unfathomable to think of what the world would be like without an iPhone. I mean... Would we still be tapping away on dozens of tiny buttons like the BlackBerry? Yeah, and think of all the companies that exist today solely because they've built a business around iPhone's mobile app store. Would those companies even exist? Yeah, I mean, fortunately, we don't even have to envision that world. Because whether we like it or not, the iPhone is here to stay. Yeah, but for the record, I do like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, me too. <laughs> 
Thanks so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM now has a premium ad-free feed. All you have to do is go to glow.fm forward slash Rocketship and subscribe. It helps support the show and it gives you an ad-free experience. You actually get an exclusive feed that you can listen to on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah, and Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective, which is a community for software product people. Product Collective is also the home of industry, the product conference, industry virtual workshops, and one of the largest Slack groups for product people anywhere. And we're also on the Podglomerate Network, so a huge thanks to Podglomerate. You can listen to all the Podglomerate shows at thepodglomerate.com. We'll see you here next week on Rocketship.fm. 